0: Uh, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time that you've given us, the breath that we have, the life, the understanding, the, even the fact that we're here. I would ask in the name of Jesus that you would uh, give your spirit in great measure to us that we can understand your word well, be encouraged by it. Lord, your, your word tells us, and you are true to your word, that if your son be lifted up, he will draw men to himself, men and women. I pray for that uh, through this preaching in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know studying the gospels as as Jack kind of said we 're going to be looking at a series in the Gospel of matthew we 'll cover the first four chapters up to the summer, and then we 'll we 'll take a break for a little bit matthew 's a long book, and so we 're going to kind of dip in and out of it through the next number of years but But Gospels are great that they really have a way of impacting us it 's this intense study on on Jesus Christ. It's, it's a very exciting um, study. It really has a habit of changing us. Uh, you know, one example, this um, British, well, Swiss-born, but British-educated um, Greek scholar, uh, well-schooled in the classics, translated um, many of the classics into English. Dr. Ryu and um, died probably 20 years ago, but just a brilliant man, and um, was once asked to translate the Gospels. He was a, by the way, he was a hard-line agnostic. So brilliant man, but God was not a part of the picture. So they asked him, after translating other Greek classics, they uh, asked him to translate the Gospels. And even his son said, later on he says, we wondered what my father would do with the Gospels. How would he translate him as an agnostic? And then he also said, but we were also wondering what the Gospels would do to my father. And uh, within a year of that translation work, he moved from agnosticism to Christianity. So Jesus is meaning to change us. And so that's my intent with this Gospel of Matthew, that it would change you. It would affect you towards greater love for God. Now, we're going to be studying in Matthew, and the first uh, chapter is the genealogy. Now, if you want to be relevant, if you want to be cutting-edge, humorous, entertaining, if you want to be, uh, you know, kind of immediate in dealing with people's pressing needs, you don't normally think of a genealogy. This thing is like a graveyard. I mean, preachers just drag their people to the genealogy and we're going to bury you in this thing. And, uh, but but I, I trust it won't be so today because I think there's a lot of great, uh, yeah, great wisdom in this genealogy of Matthew. Um, I say Matthew because that's what the earliest uh, Christian writers, they attributed this gospel to him. Uh, some think that an anonymous writer, writer uh, penned it and then attributed it to Matthew, but I, I don't think the argument is convincing. Matthew is a Jewish tax collector he writes a gospel that's very jewish in nature many of the hebraisms aren't translated much on the law deals a lot with jewish thought uh, but it is a gospel and a gospel remember is more of a portrait of christ not a photograph so so it you know in in our day a biography we're looking to know all the details of a person's life you won't find it in a gospel a gospel is more a story about God's redeeming work through Jesus in this world. So, so a gospel isn't meant to tell us that. There's, there will be historical information here for sure. But Matthew's intent is very clear in this gospel right from the beginning. He wants you to know that this Jesus is the Messiah that was promised long ago. You know, a lot of writers kind of hold back where they're going to kind of build up the suspense. Matthew doesn't. This is who he is. He is the Messiah, and the implications are profound for you. So, so that's where he goes, and that's where I'd like to go, starting in this first, in this first chapter of an intriguing genealogy. So Matthew 1, 1 to 17, if, you've read it with me, if you would read it with me. He says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram and Ram the father of Abinadab and Abinadab the father of Nashon and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah and Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat. The father of Joram and Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham and Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers. At the time of the deportation to Babylon, you guys gripped at this point? <laughs> <laughs> Where was I? Okay, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shultiel, and Shultiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud and Abbaid, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azar, and Azar, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, normally, when some preacher does choose this, which most preachers, by the way, do not preach the genealogy, the only interesting part is how is the preacher going to get through all the names? How is he going to pronounce them and will he stumble on many of them? course, you don't really know how they are pronounced, so I could have just fudged the whole thing right on through, Um, but I I didn't. Uh, So so this doesn't mean a lot to us, because we're not people of genealogies, but they were. In in fact, I would say that really, my father was too, he put a lot of work into our genealogy. Genealogies are important because they really tell the history of a family. They establish pedigree, they establish place. In a biblical genealogy, it was very important because it was, it was determining the distribution of the land. Or when the Israelites came back from Babylon, from the deportation, they had to reinstitute the priestly sacrifice. Who are the priests? Well, we've got to go to the genealogy to find who can be a priest. So genealogies are very important. You see in this one, the, the first, the book of the genealogy is, is how he starts it out. Now, in Greek, it starts out just with two words. Book in Genesis, that's all it says. Book, Genesis. This is the book of beginnings. I think Matthew's intent here is to draw our mind back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, now, in Genesis, Moses is telling the story of this is how it all happened. This is how it all began. This is the creation story. This is what God did. I think Matthew is piggybacking off of that and saying, this is a new beginning. This is a new creation. This is how it all began. In other words, God is doing a new creative work in Christ, in this Jesus the Christ. So, so he's setting himself up with Genesis, tying himself, as you see, to the Old Testament, saying here's a new work that's beginning, and it's in Jesus the Christ. Now Christ is Greek, Messiah, Hebrew. It's about the anointed one that Matthew is saying, this Jesus, he is the anointed one. God has anointed him to do a unique work, which is going to be like creation. It's going to be a recreation, this Jesus. Now, we're going to learn about this Jesus by his genealogy. We're going to find out about this Messiah through where he has come from. The first thing we see, or the first one I'm going to deal with, is that he's the son of Abraham. Now, this is big. This is really significant. And to us, I think we've probably passed right through this, and we don't realize how immense that is to be the son of Abraham. If you go in Luke's Gospel... And here's the genealogy in chapter 3. It goes all the way to Adam. He stops at Abraham. Well, why Abraham? Well, remember, Abraham was the progenitor of the faith, the father of Israel. To be descended from Abraham meant that I was a partaker of the covenant, the promises of God. I mean, Abraham in Genesis 12 was given this immense promise by God. God said to Abraham. Now, remember, Abraham is coming out of the first 11 chapters in Genesis where God has created all things. Man rebels against God and is just spiraling downward. And God comes to Abraham, he says, that through your seed, you will be a blessing to the nations. That doesn't mean you're going to make the nations happy. It means the nations will be grateful to you because through you will come their deliverance. Their their retrieval back to God overcoming the fall that took place in chapter 3. That's a huge promise that that all the nations, even creation itself was cursed in Genesis 3. Even creation is looking to Abraham and his descendants to bring forth the one that will redeem all things. The The whole plan is resting on Abraham and his seed and the nation that follows. Abraham, of course, had no son. But God promised him a son. In fact, in Genesis 22, we read, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So that Genesis 12 promise is carried over in Genesis 22. So now Abraham knows that he's going to have children. He's going to have just a multitude of nations. In fact, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, meaning he's going to be the father of nations, that all the nations will be blessed through Abraham. It's a huge promise. But, of course, as you look down this list, as I explain it to you later, it's kind of a checkered list. Where's the promise? Had God's promise to Abraham failed? Where's the seed? Deportation, Israel failed. Well, it starts in Abraham, it ends in Jesus. What Matthew's saying is that Jesus is the seed. This is what Paul said in Galatians 3, chapter 6. That Jesus was the true Israelite. Jesus is the one who's going to walk perfectly according to the law. Jesus is going to be that son that Israel was not to God. And all of our hopes are now going to be where? Not on Abraham or the unknown seed. All of our hopes are going to be on Jesus. He's going to be the one through whom all the nations will be blessed. All the nations will be blessed. This is big to you. If it isn't, it ought to be. I had a friend when I came into the faith. He was a Jewish man, and I was involved with this church plant in Annapolis. And so uh, I asked him, I said, well, you're a, you're a Jewish guy. You've been steeped in this faith of the Old Testament. I, I said, how did you become a Christian? You know what he said to me? He said, I read Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy. He said, I was convinced that Abraham and his seed would be my deliverance and hope. And that was the first time I read that Jesus was a Jew. And Jesus was from Abraham. Jesus was from Abraham. And that God opened his eyes, transformed his life in recognizing that now all my hope, everything, I'm hooking my wagon to Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one to come. So it's significant when we speak about Jesus being the son of Abraham. But secondly, we find in here that this Messiah that Matthew's teaching us about is, in fact, the son of David. You can see Matthew wants to see us connect Jesus and David as a king. It's really, really important. You can see in the genealogy how often time, uh, how many times David is repeated. Really, it really has a Davidic structure to it. It begins with David, David's in the middle, David's at the end. He wants us to see David. Now, some scholars, not all, but some scholars see David even more in this. And, and here's how they see it. You know, oftentimes... Uh, they would give uh, Hebrews would give numerical value to a name. So, so David is three letters. Hebrew is just a consonantal language. There's no vowel, so it's DVD. And so each letter would have a certain number associated with it. And, and David, DVD, would be 14, is what the numerical value of his name is. And, of course, you see the 14 generations. David's name is 14th in the list of names. So, so I think Matthew is trying to draw this connection to David. You will notice, or some non-believers will quickly point out to you, that this is a different genealogy than, than Luke's is, and it is. Luke's tends to follow more of a, of a, bio, a biological line. This tends to follow more of a, a royal line. You, they'll also point out that all the names aren't listed here. Some of these kings we don't know, uh, and some of these people we do. Uh, But remember, Matthew has an idea. He's trying to get points across. He's not trying to give this 21st century, this is how you write a genealogy list to it. He's building a paradigm through which you can see Jesus is associated with David. What's the big deal? Why did he go to so much trouble? To make sure that Jesus would be seen as the son of David. Well, David, like Abraham, was given these divine promises. God spoke to Abraham. God spoke to David. And he said to David, you're going to have a son, just like Abraham. You're going to have a son, and this son is going to be a king, and he's going to be a king over an eternal kingdom. We read it in 2 Samuel 7. He says to David, when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I'll establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This eternal kingdom. Now, we see the same thing a couple hundred years later in Isaiah chapter 9. It's generally read right at Christmas. Let me read it to you now. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know that verse. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. So what he's saying is this throne of David, it's not Solomon. Solomon was dead by now, and it was no other son, but it was Jesus. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God, upon whom shoulders sit this kingdom and this throne of David. But again, if you were a Jew listening to this letter, you'd be blown away. Because why? The the descent of David had fallen into disrepair. I mean, the monarchy had just totally crashed. They failed. They were deported. Even though they were brought back, they still failed. But they had forgotten in Isaiah 11, there was a promise made. And here's what he writes. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. There is a stump. A fourth. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots that shall bear fruit. The stump. When you look at a stump, what do you associate it with? It's a dead tree. The tree's dead. Yeah, it hasn't grown at all. It's just been there for 100 years. The promise of this promised king had fallen into disrepair. They didn't believe it. The promise had passed. You think the stump is dead, and all of a sudden you go out there one day and shoot is out of it. There's still life in that trunk. There's still life in the promise of God. God's promise hadn't failed. God's promise hadn't stopped. There was hundreds of years, but then boom, that shoot pops up. From where? From David. The stump of Jesse, David. That's associated. It's incredibly important to understand. Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, but he's also the son of God. Look with me in 16. You'll notice how I said throughout the whole genealogy, the father of, the father of, the father of, the father of. We get to 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the father. No, it doesn't say father. It says Joseph, the husband of Mary. All of a sudden, this massive shift, the husband of Mary. Why? Matthew makes no bones about it. We'll talk about this more next week. He didn't have a human father. Joseph wasn't the father of Jesus in the sense of biological father. He was a legal father, but he wasn't the biological father. Incredibly important. Matthew is making clear this Jesus has no human father. He is divinely brought, divinely begotten through Mary, but he has no father. No Adamic sin is passed on to this child. He's going to be a unique ruler, totally unique. But not just is he the son of Abraham and the son of David and the son of God, but he's also the savior of all. Now, in 21 of this chapter... The angel is going to tell Joseph, you give him the name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. Now, The reason I'm going forward for this purpose is look at the people that he's saving. Look at this list of people. I mean, it is a classic uh, just cast of characters. I mean, David, we've seen his adultery just splashed across the pages of Scripture. How about Abraham? Abraham, by the way, wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. He was the father of the Jews. He was a moon worshiper is what he was. Not only that, but then you begin to look at some of these kings, Ahaz. I mean, some of these kings are absolutely just awful kings. Some were decent kings, but a lot of them are awful. How about these women? Women, by the way, never made it into genealogies. But Matthew puts four in here. And and they're stellar women. Tamar. Tamar, if you remember, she was a seductress of her father-in-law portraying herself as a harlot. Or you have, you have Rahab. Rahab's a Canaanite, harlot, prostitute. You have Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. The Moabites, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, they were the one that led Israel into sexual perversion and sin. I mean, the Moabites were hated because they brought all kinds of issues to Israel. Or how about Bathsheba? Bathsheba isn't even named. Her husband, who she cheated on. And then David murdered is in the list. So, I mean, you think you have a dysfunctional family. I mean, this thing has got it all working. This is really the church, by the way. It is the church. So Jesus is the Savior of all. That Jesus has come from this line, I think, in some respects, to show us here's who he's come to save. Jesus hasn't come to fix political issues. He didn't come, Matthew's not saying he's coming to to fix, you know, the military rule of, of Rome. He's coming to save people from their sins, and the character that he saves are across the board. So this is what we see in Matthew's genealogy. Then, that, that in fact, he's the son of Abraham, he's the son of David, he's the son of God, he's the savior of all. This is what Matthew's trying to say, right out of the gate. He's not seeking to draw you in with the story. He's just telling you this is Jesus, the Messiah. Now, the implications he's going to then tease out through the rest of the gospel. But let me just bring a, fru- a few to, uh, to bear on you. Some of the implications, because you're thinking, that's great news and everything, Tom, but as Carol would often say to me at the beginning of preaching, so what? So what's it all matter? I think, I think a lot of you would already know that it matters deeply, but let me, let me let me bring them out a little bit. Number one, this genealogy would teach you that Christ is the center of history. In other words, it wasn't accidental. It wasn't, it wasn't, haphazard that jesus was born that jesus god providentially brought jesus to this family at this time to establish a new age a new kingdom a new order that jesus christ is beginning something new that in the coming of christ everything has changed it all changes a new kingdom was inaugurated a new age was started you see in the language in the new testament they are born again we are a new creation matthew uh, in um Chapter 3, we'll be looking at it in a few weeks. John the Baptist says that the axe is already at the root of the trees. Judgment has already begun. John says if you haven't believed in Jesus, you're judged already. There is this overlapping of the ages in which we currently live. You and I right now, breathing, living. We're in this overlapping of the ages where Christ has established a kingdom. The old order is fading, and there's going to be a new order. I mean, it's not surprising that they wanted to start the date of the calendar with the birth of Jesus. He inaugurated, that's why it's two thousand and twelve. It's not five thousand or six thousand or whatever number you use. It's two thousand and twelve. They thought he's established a new order and we're going to start our calendar now with his coming. Now this has huge implications for you. If you're a Christian, that means you're living in a new age. You're part of a new kingdom. I mean you're not people building kingdoms of flesh and stone and concrete and finances. You're a pilgrim people. You need to hear this because we live in a very comfortable, affluent culture and we don't think of ourselves as pilgrims. If we put you in a Bedouin tent, you might think of yourself that way. We don't because we're so comfortable. But in fact, you are a pilgrim. You know, in 1733, Jonathan Edwards wrote this sermon on how to be a pilgrim. And some of the points he brought out were, number one, that pilgrims hold things of this world loosely. That's what pilgrims do. That if Jesus has in fact come and he's inaugurated a new age and you are part of that kingdom as a Christian, then you hold things loosely. How loosely do you hold the things of your world, even your families? Pilgrims will be satisfied with anything. Pilgrims will not be satisfied with anything less than God. It's a challenge to us. Level of satisfaction that we have over physical things is profound. But if you're a pilgrim, You want God. Pilgrims, and this is an important one, pilgrims are not grieved by their arrival at the journey's end. Pilgrims are not grieved at their arrival at the journey's end. When you are preparing to die, you're not grieving. You're not grieving in the sense that you're going to see the one who has established a new age and he's drawing you into it. People, what I'm saying is, if you get the note from the doctor, Yes, there's an initial sense of grief because of the love that you have for those around you. But there ought to be an increasing desire in us, like Paul, to live as Christ, to die is gain. It's better. We want to see him. That's the heartbeat of a pilgrim. So if Jesus has inaugurated this new age that Matthew is saying, then we're wanting to grow that way. I, I, I learned this in a very instructive way uh, so we've been going to Haiti for years now, and I don't know how many times I've been down, but uh, the, the first time I went down, the first or second time, we had um, lunch, we had dinner at Pastor Jeremiah's house. Sweet man. You know Pastor Jeremiah. He's preached in this pulpit before. Uh, he served Paco, a church, for 30 years, this desperately poor church, preached out there, desperately poor off a beaten track, uh, has traveled by moped and by tap-tap, their form of a taxi, which is the best I can say about it. Uh, but, but he's gone there, I don't know how many miles, it's been probably 20 miles, just he'd go there every weekend to preach, he'd have revivals out there, he'd do VBSs, just serve the people with an unfathomable faithfulness in just a desperately wicked conditions, very, very hard, and uh, well, I got news you know this week from Stan that he has died, uh, he died this week, he's had heart issues, he had some leg problems, he was in an accident in a moped, and uh, he died, and uh, so I, I saw the email, it says, Pastor Jeremiah went home. And so I knew he was in the hospital, and so I thought that meant he was out of the hospital. And I just scanned it, I saw the note, and I didn't read it. And then came back to it Friday and read it. And, and then I read Stan's email and said, he went home be with the Lord. And Pastor Jeremiah is unique to me for this reason. And the reason I bring him up is when we we're down there the first time, we're having dinner at his house. I got a phone call from the church, which you never want phone calls when you're overseas. And uh, I got a phone call uh, during dinner that uh, Frank Smith had died. And uh, I love Frank, and uh, it, that kind of choked me up visibly. It was a shock. He was, he was suffering with cancer, but, you know, you still hear the news, and you're shocked, and I got choked up. And Pastor Jeremiah looked at me, and um, I shared this while back, but I think it's appropriate now, and he said, uh, he looked at me kind of not surprised, but he just said to me, he says, Pastor, this isn't our home. And I remember at that point feeling like I'm a pupil and he's the master and he's teaching me something that I should have known. And I guess I knew it cognitively, but I needed to be responded. This isn't our home. We quickly think this is our home. This is it. This is what we have. Let's live for life. Let's grab everything we can out of this life. This isn't our home. That's the point. The point is that he's established a new age a new order. And, uh, and this is not our home, people. And you need to hear me say that, and I need to hear myself say that. Okay, second implication about this genealogy is that the story continues in Jesus. You know, folks, Jesus, this Matthew 1, 1 to 17 is really a compressed history of Israel. Really, it's just the whole Old Testament shrunk wrap for us. This is what it is. Jesus is continuing what God started already. This is the one snag we have in evangelicalism within conservative churches that we have here. This is a snag that when we talk about salvation, we think of this. Jesus died on a cross for my sins. I'm going to heaven. That's it. That's the whole story. That's what I've got. I'm good to go. Thank you very much. And that's the way it's portrayed. Just believe this. Jesus came. He died for my sins. I'm going to heaven. Folks, that is true. Each one of those are truths. But they are incomplete into the redemptive story that God is weaving through the scriptures. I want you to hear me on this. It's just like you go up to your child and they want to bake a cake. And when well, you just say to them, well, get some water, get some flour, throw an egg in there, pop it, mix it up, pop it in the oven, pull it out about 30 minutes and you should be good to go. It's a reductionistic view of how to make a cake. To say that Jesus is died on a cross for my sins, I'm going to heaven, is reductionistic. It's shrink wrapping too small the glorious nature. I want you to see God's redemptive story here in, these, in this genealogy as this huge canvas. And, and God is painting a story that is going to just overwhelm us for eternity. And so you have God creating all things out of, his, out of his, from his word. I received this, you know, you've seen those pictures of nebulae a bazillion light years away. This is the nature of God creating all things. And yet his own creation rebels against him. And then God, in mercy, where are you? He calls out for Adam, seeking repentance. Adam doesn't repent. But God moves with a promise, I will redeem you. And this promise is traced out. It hits high watermarks in Genesis 12 and 22, King David. God is doing a great work. Jesus comes, as the genealogy speaks about. And then Jesus is that Israelite. He's the true Israelite. And upon him, the curse that should have been upon us, us has fallen. And then he dies on the cross for our sins to establish us with the father in union with him. We're now acceptable to God forever going to be with God. And now Jesus ascends. He sends his spirit. The spirit fills the church. The church does the work that he's, that he did. Remember, Genesis, it said he'll be a blessing to the nations. Jesus was a blessing to the nations. What does he say at the end of Matthew? He says, go into all the nations. Why? Because now we're the blessing. It blows away this individualistic understanding of of the gospel. It's a corporate event. That is the redemptive story. Yes, did he die for my sins on a cross so I could go to heaven? Yes, but it's so much more than that. I want to catch you up in in the saints of 200 and 300 and 600 years ago. And if the Lord tarries another 200 and 300 years, we're all part of this community in Christ, now seated at the right hand of God, filling his people with the Spirit. That is the story. This is a continuation of the Old Testament. This is why, you know, I had one pastor one time, at the very beginning of my Christian life, he says, you don't have to read the Old Testament, just stick with the new. That's terrible advice. This is a story of the Old Testament. Christians, we don't know our Old Testaments. We ought to know it. Even Paul said the examples given before are to help us. To not read the Old Testament, to not know the Old Testament, is to miss so much of this landscape of what God has done. The faithfulness, the character, the glory of God is all missed. We just bring it down. That's what we tend to do in this. In the modernization is we want to boil it down to its simplest constituent parts and then, good, I'm good to go. It's much, it's much broader, much more comprehensive, much deeper than all that. Okay, so, so we want to be Old Testament people looking for Christ not just the New Testament. But, but thirdly, I think this genealogy clearly shows the faithfulness of God to his word. Listen, six times in the first number of chapters of Matthew, you're going to read this. We're going to read that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. God has spoken and it has happened. God set in motion in time that Abraham would have a son, he did. David would have a son, he did. That God's word is faithful, it's trustworthy. It's, you can believe it. His faithfulness to the promises that he gives us are not conditioned upon your perfect obedience, but they're conditioned upon his character. Let me repeat that. God's faithfulness to his word to you is not rooted in your perfect righteousness, but it's rooted in his character. In Second Timothy, we read this, that if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You know how you've often said to yourself, well, I don't know if God's going to come through. I just haven't been living like I should, I should live. Now, I don't want to encourage, you know, lack of diligence and holy living, but God has never set his word to be timed to your, to your perfect obedience. God has made promises. The work of the saint is to hold the promises tightly. That, that is, you see God's faithfulness here? If you're a saint, if you're a Christian, you, you cling to his promises, you meditate, you consider them. The promises that, you know, like in the letter of Peter, he says everything pertaining to life and godliness has been given to you through the knowledge of him. I'm thinking, do I hold on to that? The forgiveness I have, do you hold on to your sins? Do you drag them behind you like corpses? Do you trust the promises that you've been forgiven, you've been loved, you're going to be blameless when you see them? Do you look at these promises of my presence will never leave you nor forsake you? That nothing, life, death, angels, demons, powers, present, nor things to come, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God. Do you believe that promise? Because that's the work of the saint. And so this genealogy reminds us of his faithfulness to his word. You can trust in his word. What it says, you can trust. And by the same, by the same measure, if you're not a Christian here, The word is still faithful. The word of condemnation and wrath is still true. We we don't want to talk about this in this modern age, but to the non-Christian, I would be remiss as a pastor if I didn't say to you that if God's word is true in the encouragement to the saint, it's also true in the coming wrath and the warning of judgment to the unbeliever. That This idea that, that standing apart from God without Christ means that you are under his wrath now. I mean, the, it, so one can't be true and not the other. Now, the fact that you're living and breathing is by his grace. And if you sense your spirit convicted and you turn, he says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I believe that whoever. If you feel God pressing you, that you want to repent of your sins and turn to Christ, then Christ is for you. I believe that, even today, even after the service. But the promises are true. Fourth, I just have a couple more. Uh, God, I think from this genealogy, clearly God is calling us to worship Christ as king. Uh, Jesus is not exhibiting his reign in its fullest measure, obviously right now, as evil still exists and death still occurs. uh, But he will. Interesting, at the end of Matthew, there's a good number of parables about his return in glory and power. And Jesus will return in power and glory. So for the Christian, what that means is this. For the Christian, Christ is your king. Christ is the one that you follow. You obey Christ. There's a clear call to obedience here. You know, most of us say, well, I want to follow my heart. I I want to follow my heart. You know, I read a terrible review or an article in the the news regarding a 40-year-old man left a wife, two children, for one of his former students in high school. He's 40, she's 18. They're now living together. And, of course, there's tragedy all over the place in a situation like that. But what was interesting, and the reason I'm raising it up, is because uh, when they were interviewed by the paper, they said, well, don't you realize the hurt you're causing? And uh, they both, they agreed that, well, we must follow our heart. And, and we maybe chuckle over that, but the Christian always says that. The Christian says, I, I gotta, I'm just going to follow my heart. I would almost say, don't follow your heart. Follow your king. Follow what your king says. Don't follow what your heart says. Your heart's deceitful and wicked. Yeah, it's being, re- it's being changed and transformed from glory to glory. I believe that. But follow your king first. You know, meditate on your king. What does he have to say? I mean, when the disciples were sent out, teach them all that, you know, he says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. These are commands. They're good commands, people. They're not bad commands. They're good commands. When, when someone who loves you gives a command, it's a good command. It leads to joy and satisfaction and, and peace and harmony in relationships. Uh, so, and then last, uh, God does want to deal with sin. I, I do want to point this out, that sending Jesus was to deal with sin. It wasn't to deal with all the other crises in your life. I think God does deal with all the other crises. But I don't want to lose first to the other crises. I want you to know that God hates sin in us so much that he would send a son. That's the purpose of this genealogy. I'm bringing the son to save you from sin. Do you deal, do you consider sin in the same way that God deals with it? And, and then just finally, this is my second last. Um, God is gracious to sinners. When you look at the genealogy and you look at the dysfunction of it, and that God would appoint this family to be the one through whom he draws his son begets his son, I I just see amazingly gracious God, amazingly gracious that he would save sinners like us. And at the end of the day, when you think through this genealogy, you're just left with this idea of, God, you're very kind. You're very kind to save sinners. You're very kind to send your son in such a family to save such a family. Now, I know that you know that this church, we're dysfunctional like every other church. I know you also that you know you're the only normal one in the church. Now, I'm here to tell you that you're not, or you're as normal as every other dysfunctional person in this, but he has come to save us. And he is worthy of worship and praise. So when you look at the genealogy, I think you'd agree now that there is quite a bit more going on. And uh, we just want to take a few moments now. It has been harder to have a prayer time with groups, and the church is filled as it has been. And and so I, I want to encourage us, that our prayer time is really a foretaste of what we're going to be doing in heaven. And that is we're just responding to that which we know about God. It's words of thanks and praise. It's, it's reading a verse in Scripture. It's confessing. It's, it's just coming clean with God at the level that's appropriate for a public situation like this. So, but if you do pray, I would ask you to pray loudly so that it's effective We're doing it as a corporate body. And I would ask you to pray briefly. Briefly, because there may be others that want to pray. And then when we are finished, Daniel will close us in just a moment. Let me open for us this brief time of worship. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus Christ. That he is the Christ, the promised one, the deliverer from sin. The one fulfilling all your promises. All the promises are yes in Christ. Father, Lift your son up that you would draw us to him in desperate love.